Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. I hope you all know why I brought you here. <laughs> I have no idea, actually. Oh, well, I wanted to talk to you about speaking at conferences. And I picked the conference speakers at Heroku that I knew. Great. Maybe, maybe we should start by introducing ourselves. Who are you? Some people call me Schneems. I go by Richard Schneeman. Uh, I work for Heroku. You might be surprised to hear. Uh, on the languages team where I maintain the Ruby build pack. Oh, I also run a great service you should totally subscribe to called CodeTriage.com. Hi, I'm Terrence. Uh, I also work at said company, Heroku, and work on the, on the languages team. I'm Joe Kuttner. Uh, I run the Java stack on Heroku, uh, and as part of that work, I do a lot of engagement with the Java community, so that is, involves speaking at conferences. Uh, I'm also the author of The Healthy Programmer. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Amy. I work on Heroku's API team. Uh, and I occasionally speak at conferences. I'm Stella. I work on the tools team at Heroku. My thing I'd like to plug is that I co-organize a meetup here in San Francisco called Fog City Ruby. And it's a really rad meetup. Apparently I'm your host, Caleb Thompson. I work on the support team here. So what got everyone into speaking in the first place, I guess, is an interesting part, interesting place to start. I was freelancing and I needed customers. <laughs> So um, I worked at a consultancy and to improve people's ability to put together talks and also to just to get to know each other better. We put on an internal conference where everyone would uh, give a, either a funny talk, something they cared about, whatever. And as an organizer of said uh, conference, I did not in fact need to talk. So that was lovely until uh, one of the people who was going to speak had to drop out. Mm. And so I needed 20 minutes of content uh, overnight. <laughs> and so I came up with kind of a funny, silly talk that I then submitted to Ruby on Ales. And for some reason, they accepted me. And they put me in the right after lunchtime spot. Uh, the most sought after spot. <laughs> yes. And it was a really fun experience because I, I realized, like, yeah, half the people in the audience are asleep right now. But uh, this talk is hopefully somewhat interesting. And like the other half are like actually laughing along a little bit. And it was kind of a fun experience to be on stage and talking about stuff that I, I cared about. So it was a great little lesson in, yes, I like this. And yes, I can fill those slots that conference organizers really struggled to fill. And it stuck. It did. Anyone else? I feel like Richard was probably born speaking. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually really, really shy. I went to uh, Austin Rails, which is a meetup group, much like the amazing Fog City Ruby. And for several years, I kind of just lurked. I would just go, I'd go to all the talks, and then afterwards they have kind of a, uh, they go to a bar and just hang out, and that's where like the, all the socialization happens. And I would just skip that because I didn't feel confident in, I would, like I was going to show up and they'd be like, who do you work for? Complete this, reverse a doubly linked list or something. And they'd be like, you're not a real programmer. And so I just skipped it. And one time the conference organizer like just came to me. There were, or not conference organizer, uh, the meetup organizer. There were like only 12 of us in the room maybe. 
and was like, hey, what do you, what you, you've yeah. been coming to this for a while, like, what can you talk about? Uh, and a version of Rails had just come out, and I was like, oh, well, I migrated my app from that to that, and I can talk about that process. And I did that, and it was like such an extreme uh, adrenaline high, like, getting, I'm very terrified of speaking in front of people, but kind of in the same way of like roller coasters. So it turns out that I really liked it. Um, and then after that, I like I went to the bar with everybody, and that was like my first experience there. And people were buying me drinks, and I was like, "This is amazing!" And then somebody like offered to like interview me for a job. I, I did that, and he is now working at Heroku. So the job I asked him to interview for ended up working out. So Amy, you actually mentioned something uh, I think could be interesting to dig into a little bit: the slot after lunch. Yeah. So I think speakers have kind of a sense of slots and what slots are better or worse but maybe that's not as obvious to people who aren't speakers yet the slots are kind of an interesting game that conference organizers have to play we have like three conference organizers here so you can correct me if this is not quite the case from the speaker's point of view we we tend to think that the first sessions if it's a multi-day conference the first day people actually have the attention span they're excited they they are there to learn or to prove that they've learned something so that they can then go party at depending on the conference so if you really have heavy technical content that you want someone to really feel engaged in you probably want a first day slot you never want an after lunch slot because people are late coming back. I mean, there's conference organizers are giving more and more time for lunch because they recognize that people don't get back. But you you will have people who take a two hour lunch, um, and you for the people who are at the conference who don't have that kind of a social network where you want to stay out for two hours talking to people, uh, you don't want to leave them hanging and nothing to do on that first day. So at some point, the talk has to start. People are going to be tired. People are going to be wandering in. So hence the lack of love for the after lunch spot. And then towards the end of a conference, right, you don't want the morning slots after, you know, there's a significant contingent of people who may be hungover if you're going to some of the conferences where people are excited to drink on the company dime. Then towards the end of the conference, you might actually want to be slotted in for maybe a softer talk, a more entertaining talk, depending on the reputation you have as a speaker. People will start to get mentally fatigued a little bit more and be more excited about going to a talk that has a little bit more of a chance of entertaining them and keeping them engaged because their brains are tired, my brain is tired, totally fried by the end of it. The final thing that might be useful for people to know is that if you're a first time speaker, conference organizers really want to help you get over your nerves and so ask, if you want to get over your nerves, you want to be done, a lot of them are very happy to boot us experienced people out of those prime first day slots to give them to you and we are happy, like I love when someone is able to give their talk, first talk on the first day, and they're over the moon. Um, it's such a wonderful vibe, so ask for that if you want, want it. Yeah, there's definitely kind of a science that goes into figuring out where all the talks should go, and I know I like to be pretty early as well, but I'm perfectly happy to be later now that I've kind of been around the block a few times. I do like that right after lunch spot, though, because I feel like the pressure is really low. <laughs> Absolutely. That's one of my favorite uh, things about that after lunchtime slot. Like, 
I just have to have a couple jokes land, and the part of the room that is not completely asleep is so thankful that... And then you wake up the rest. Yeah. With, with <laughs> the laughter. Go. Yeah, I actually feel like that slot's very similar to the second day morning slot. Yeah. It's like a similar vibe. Uh, so I actually do all the timing and scheduling for the speakers for Keeper Be Weird uh, for the last four years. Uh, we're only a one-day conference, but when I go through and look at it, I actually put like pretty high-energy octane people on the afternoon lunch slot, and it's usually a pretty prestigious slot in the sense that like I expect a lot out of this person because their job is to wake up the crowd and like keep them entertained and, and make them want to come back from lunch. Because if you don't do that, then you do tend to have this where people um, may be more incentivized to stay out longer. At Keeper Weird, we also, I guess, like just cater lunch in, so it helps part of that as well. So they don't actually leave. We just keep them trapped all day. Um, <laughs> so maybe not so low pressure. Yeah. I actually find the last slot as a speaker the hardest slot um, because you have the last message and say for the conference of length. And in some ways, like, uh, when I've talked to Aaron Patterson about this, who's done a bunch of closing keynotes, um, part of it is like you're trying to wrap up the conference too, and like especially for it's a little different if you have a multi-track versus a single-track conference. And so with a single-track conference, every one there's really isn't a hallway track as much, which there are is for a multi-track conference where people will skip talks to just like chat and connect and stuff like that, uh, but in a single track conference, people tend to go to all the same talks, so everyone has a very similar experience. And so in those closing keynotes for those kind of conferences, like I feel like there's this onus to kind of wrap up and do references to the existing talks. And so that, I always find that really hard because that means as a speaker, you have to, you can't be working on your own talk, you actually have to be attentive and like listen to every talk that goes into it so you can actually kind of wrap all that stuff up. So Stella, I think you know this, but when we're at conferences, we can't always make it to our coworkers and our friends' talks because you know there's just other commitments that we have during conferences. But I have been seen a few of your talks and I was wondering if you have any advice for speakers. Just general advice. Just for general speakers? advice. Like the biggest thing you wish you could tell someone who wants to be a speaker or wants to be a better speaker. Okay, I guess my advice uh, that I would give is unless you're like really confident in your ability to give technical talks off the cuff, don't listen to people who tell you that you can just throw some slides together and then wing it. Because I think that advice is actually not universally applicable and even some seasoned speakers who say that they do that um, maybe don't have a very um, objective view of the way that their talks come together. I maybe do a little too much. I'm like a very nervous speaker. Uh, so I have a full script. I write every word. Um, it's like the same talk almost every time. But um, somewhere in the middle is probably the right the right spot. But especially if you're a new speaker, like don't listen to those people <laughs> until you like are really sure that that's, that that's how, uh, how it works for you. I completely agree with that. And even, I mean, after speaking for many years, I still almost script but uh, for a month before a talk, I practice uh, sometimes every day of the talk. Like I, I am, I'll go into a room, close the door, and speak out loud. I find that's the only way to practice for me. Um, but after years of doing that, I've also found that within those constraints, I've learned how to like ad lib as necessary. So I think that's helped to make my talks more feel more natural. But yeah, I definitely don't find a lack of preparation to be beneficial. 
And I think ad-libbing comes from a, from a better place when it's on a foundation of preparation. It means that you still like get, especially with technical talks, because like a lot of times you're talking to an audience who have very different skill levels, who have very different understandings of like the topic that you're talking about. And it's so easy to lose people if you're not thoughtful about the way that you present your ideas and the structure of that. So I think that's pretty important. Yeah, I'll definitely second or maybe third the idea that don't worry about the advice that you can become too stiff if you rehearse too much. There comes to be a point where you've rehearsed so many times that you have variations on each sentence. And that's where I find my natural delivery comes from is that I've rehearsed enough that I am confident and clear in my delivery of one of three different versions of the main content of like any sentence and I'm still hitting the key sentences that I know make the talk and make my ideas come across. I guess the other thing as far as like stage fright and nervousness like I think almost every speaker has it like I I was terrified of public speaking as a kid and still am today. Uh, I don't know why I do so many talks actually but uh, <laughs> Like, I think you're also more conscious as a speaker, too, on stage when you make mistakes. And I think the audience is, like, doesn't know your material as well as you do and probably won't notice that you made that mistake or forgot to say something that was important uh, that you probably skipped over. And uh, you just kind of just need to go with it and keep going and kind of just ignore the fact that uh, you may have forgotten to say something. Um, it happens to everyone. And the audience wants you to succeed. Like everyone in that room wants you to like be living your best life on stage. No one there is there to be like, oh, that that sentence. I could tell that was a little off. You know, everybody's rooting for you, even if you're panicking and sweating. And I think it's very forgiving too. Yeah. Like the audience, I feel like maybe like I've gone off on a tangent sometimes, or oh crap, I forgot this line completely, or this didn't make any sense. But that never seems to come through to the audience. And I'll, I'll even point out, like, yeah, I felt like this section was really kind of choppy, and, and they're like, no, it seemed fine. Another thing that I do is I try to have a little ritual before, like, I actually go on stage. So I try to figure out, okay, what room am I in well ahead of time? Um, if I don't know, then I'll maybe ask, the, you know, some other people, as I just asked Caleb, like, 30 minutes ago. And what do I want to do right before that? Uh, is it, if it's later in the afternoon, I probably want some sort of a coffee or like a pick me up, make sure I've got, if uh, not all venues have bottled water at the stand, so like have, have some water or like some mints or something to just, you know, you don't want to be up there and just like, oh, suddenly have dry mouth. And I try to, ideally, if I can, no matter how much I practice ahead of time, I try to also do a, a run through like the day of and just kind of get that memory like load all of that information into my short-term memory so then if I do go off the rails then I can hopefully kind of remember oh where where was I going with that yeah for me doing one run through right first thing in the morning and then ignoring my talk until I have to give it mm -hmm. is a pattern that really works for me. I know some other people will just spend, spend the entire morning and afternoon in their room until their slot and then come over and give it and be practicing that entire time. But I think it varies per person. I always make sure to watch the talk before mine for one reason is that it gets my talk out of my head. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also gives me a guarantee whatever the conference organizers have said, whatever the morning check, sound check was like, that I know the AV issues going in. That to me is the biggest 
thing that flusters me on stage is ending up with AV issues. I've had my slides advance when I stepped on a particular place on stage. <laughs> and I'm a pacer on wow. stage. For me, having the confidence that the AV equipment is going to work uh, is part of my ritual just because I know it's going to fluster me. Are there things that can fail that you can just keep going through with your talk on? Like maybe your slides fail. Can you still give your talk without the slides behind you? I can still give my talk without my slides behind me, but I know that's totally not universal. <laughs> Definitely. I've always admired people though who will like something will fail, but not catastrophically. Like the audience can still hear me. I'm going to go through with this. I've got a time slot. I need to get going. I've always thought that was really cool when they just power through it, even if things aren't going their way. The the worst thing I, I so normally I go to the the spot before me, so I have every second possible to set up, and like, oh no, I'm on mirroring, and I need to be this other, and oh no, mm -hmm. it's the wrong aspect ratio, and like Command X on Keynote is is key. Just remember that everybody, Command X. And what does Command X do? It switches which display is the presenter view. Ah, that's good. So Stella just had a mind blow moment, I think. Also, you're, I really I needed that. You can reset your timers with, I think it's Command R. Uh, so what? like if that one is oh, crucial. No, I just had a mind blowing moment. Yeah, so you wanna, you wanna like, I always want to advance to the next slide to make sure that like, oh, my computer's responsive. Oh, and uh, I use like caffeinate to make sure it doesn't fall asleep. But the worst thing that happened when I didn't go to the talk right before mine was I actually forgot my computer. I left my computer. I had gone back to my hotel room to like practice and I practiced and then I, I packed my remote and like my jacket and I put it in the bag and uh, and then I went to the talk and I was like kinda hit the last like 10 minutes of it and I was like all right I'm ready to oh and like I, I sprinted <laughs> to <laughs> back to my room uh, and luckily I was giving a talk that involved uh, some props and one of them was a skateboard and so I actually made my entrance skateboarding into the like conference talk so it was kind of appropriate that I was seemingly out of breath because I actually was out of breath. So it kind of worked out. I think that's my new nightmare of like being naked on stage, just <laughs> being fully clothed on stage, but not having my computer. So I have a question, Caleb, if you're willing to yield the floor. Absolutely. I think we touched on this. How many of us use Keynote versus how many of us use another thing? I'm all about Keynote. I'm also all about Keynote. I have like such a thing down now with it that even if it's not the best, it's like the most efficient for me. I love Keynote, but I have not shelled out the money for it. And I keep on being reminded by these fine folks that I can get a pass for it by being employed here. So I will say I've done both. Keynote is superior, but I am lazy. What, what is your other both? Oh, right. Uh, Google Slides. Oh, Google Slides. Okay. So I keynote, I dislike Google Slides with a fiery passion of a yes. thousand suns. Yes. Uh, I use Google Slides because I don't have a Mac, <laughs> so keynote's not really an option. Uh, the nice benefit of Google Slides, though, is that if you pull a Richard, uh, you can just use another person's computer from anywhere and just load them up and just go with it. So it's a nice benefit of that. Also, collaboration works really well for joint talks. I've seen so many people at conferences um, where the conference Wi-Fi is like going down and is spotty. 
uh, not be able to load their talks or the images for their talks because they didn't do it in offline mode. Mm. I feel like every yes. conference I go to, at least one talk doesn't have images because they forgot. Oh yeah, to pro tip, just load your talk up before you go on stage, so I definitely do that. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure that's that's like necessary, but I like that I don't have to worry about that. I have some questions. Yeah. If, so uh, my two questions are, how do you decide what topic you want to talk about? Or uh, what processes do you use to prepare for a talk? I'll take, uh, how do you pick a topic? Because I don't give a lot of talks, I usually give like one a year, maybe I'll give it a couple times. I usually try to spend about six months just focusing on an interesting project. Uh, luckily, Hercule allows me to do that. And whatever I feel like I've learned at the end of those six months, um, I pull a list of technical topics that I could speak on. Um, and then I try to do different variations on those. You know, a high-level talk that would be accessible to entry-level people, um, a really deep technical dive. Um, and after I have a couple of different topics and different kind of pitches in my head for how I might deliver it, um, I then kind of think about what conferences I would like to speak at, mm. which ones I think are going to be a good experience, and try to guess at where their uh, gaps are going to be in the program. So a talk that I gave a couple years ago on rack middleware, right, like that one was pitched to entry-level people because I don't think anybody really, like I, I don't think you need a massive education on what rack middleware is unless you are doing something very specific with it and I don't want to speak to 100 people about that so it worked best as a entry level one and I wanted to speak at RailsConf. I thought it would be a, a topic that they would think that a lot of people would want to hear uh, and that I had something valuable to say that would fill a gap of hey, nobody has talked about rack middleware in a while. And I think the nice thing about a talk on rack middleware is that you really can be inserted anywhere in the stack. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, so that, uh, what you said rem reminded me of, it's like, okay, you're, you want to think of a specific conference. Um, and I know Caleb has uh, picked talks for, was it RubyConf or was it RailsConf? One of the, one of the one of those Ruby two. Central conferences. And one of the things that they... In addition to thinking of the conference, they also have tracks, and a track might be like failure modes or like databases or just something. And, and if you can make a talk that fits in that track, it helps your chances of getting uh, actually into the conference. Um, so just pro tip, try that. Don't necessarily throw away all of your other talks. You can submit multiple talks to the same conference. Like I think a lot of people feel like that's cheating or something. Oh, yeah, I think it's a great idea to submit two or even three talks to a conference. But, yeah, I get about one I, about one out of every three talks that I submit, I would say gets accepted. Is that submissions or is that talks? Like, if you submit to ten different conferences, are you going to be speaking at 3.3 conferences? In the past, yes. And, well, and I, I kind of have a little um, uh, genetic algorithm for how I pick which which conference talks I submit to other conferences. Like if, if I generally submit two, at minimum of two, like a, um, a, a technical and a non-technical talk uh, to each conference because I just 
some, sometimes the conference organizer wants something slightly different and then whichever of the talks gets picked then I will definitely keep that one and keep on submitting that one to other conferences and then I will try to uh, try to brainstorm on what are other different talks I can maybe talk about so you you had previously mentioned that oh you you go tech really technical for six months and and here are a bunch of different ideas that you could maybe talk about well maybe maybe it's an interesting topic but just the wrong approach or or, uh, or like you also mentioned targeting a beginner versus an intermediate yeah. and so I think that that's a good thing to be thinking about yeah I think it's a really good strategy if you do if you're looking to get started and you are not needing to make a career out of speaking um, that to really deep dive into what you're an expert in. I mean, there's also a great strategy of being like, I don't know anything about this thing, but a lot of people I talk to don't know enough about it either, so I will make a talk for it. Um, and that's a great learning tool as well, but um, if you can be on stage and talk about something that you have spent a lot of time on, for me that helps with confidence. Yeah, actually, a bit of advice, don't live code. <laughs> you're not going to do well at it. Unless you're Kelsey Hightower, don't live code. Yeah, there are a few people that um, but they're, they're evangelists who are out there speaking every week or something like that, and they have a lot of practice at it, and they have a way of doing it that flows well, and they know how to recover. Everything I do is video recorded if it's not slides. Yeah, I mean, I think there are absolutely strategies for doing live coding or almost live coding. Um, certainly having, like, get checkout points where you can reset if you need to um, is amazing. The ones that I just can't comprehend are the ones that require network, mm. um, because sure, you know, you can you think that you have a backup of tethering to your phone, but if they, you know, you end up in a room and it's too much concrete, too many cell phone signals. I've seen that like people just don't have. They'll have like Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, and none of them allow them to connect to the internet. I think it's interesting how a lot of introverts can still end up being speakers. Yeah. Like, I'll go up there and I'll actually not remember much of it. I kind of go into a fugue, but afterwards I'm just so drained because I am an introvert and it's like, I just used all of my energy. Yeah. If you want to come and talk to me, you can come talk to me, but I don't have the energy to have a new conversation yeah. or initiate anything at this point. Yeah. And like the dynamic around questions at that point, right? Like I, I have totally, I have no sense of what I just talked about. But I have a bunch of people who are like trying to make their points in the question section. Statement as question. Yes. And then the second you get off stage, there are a bunch of people who like think you'd be a good employee for no reason other than you just <laughs> talked about that. There was a menace in Ruby a few years ago, well, at this point, many years ago, where Steve Klabnik got on stage and he asked, how many of you think I'm a good programmer? Pretty much everybody raised their hand. How many of you have actually seen my code? Right? Like, nobody has actually... Well, not nobody, but very few people at that point had actually seen his code. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a, just a really interesting thing that you become this uh, person who's trusted for absolutely no reason. So I have a, I have a uh, break from this, but a question for the group. Uh, what steps have you taken to get better at speaking? Like, so you've, it's not your first talk. It's, you, you had mentioned like, oh, you take feedback, but like, how do you get feedback? And or how do you solicit feedback, or um, like how do you decide even what you want to do differently maybe next time? I think people can be really nice at conferences and they will come up to you and thank you for your talk and that's about it. 
and maybe they've got a question, but if you don't ask for feedback, then you won't get it from a lot of people. And some people have a different relationship, like maybe my good friend will be willing to give me feedback even if I didn't ask for it. But I always try, when somebody comes up to me and says, hey, that was a great talk, thank you so much. My response is, thank you, I appreciate that, what can I do better? Mm. And they don't always have something, but it at least opens the door for them. I mean, I think there's a more nuanced point there though, that like asking someone who also speaks knows they'll know a little bit more about what a good talk is. And they also probably have a little more confidence that you're not gonna crawl into a ball and start weeping if they give you any uh, any negative feedback. If you, like, you know, if Stella told me my slides were terrible, I would be like, thank you, Stella. Like, my slides really do need work um, because, and, and I hope Stella would feel confident if my slides were like really, really bad to tell me that because like, it's really not going to affect me. It is something I know is part of a process, is part of my professional, it's not what I'm paid to do, but it is part of my professional career, I guess. And so it's, it is valuable feedback. I think a lot of people are a little more hesitant to give feedback who haven't spoken because it is in their mind such a big thing. Um, and they aren't necessarily, and they also like don't know you. <laughs> I think watching the talks that are video recorded, in particular of yourself, you know, watching yourself, mm. in particular after a month later or so, <laughs> yeah, it can nope. be. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot get more than okay. 30 seconds in. It's yes. uncomfortable, oh, which means it's probably good for you. Yes. I, I like to wait until I have essentially forgotten the talk, so mm. it's like watching it a little bit fresh. If you watch it the day after, you're just, it's almost like rehearsing it again, it doesn't help you. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll watch it much later. I've gone back and watched them a year or so later. And then, man, this is going to sound really like like I'm a talk Nazi or something, but I'll, I'll turn the sound off and watch it without any sound mm. for, uh, to study the body language. Mm. Um, I'll turn on just the audio and listen to it without watching it. Mm. Um, I think actually learning about your, the body language is important too. Um, I found like in my earlier talks, I would have like two movements that I would make and I would repeat those movements. And, it, and in my mind, it was similar to using like, um, um, or like verbally, you know? So I worked in like, when I would rehearse talks, I would set up a video camera, go back and watch and, s and try to keep it more fluid. Those are actually really good tips. And honestly, I think while there are a lot of people out there who like Richard and I have like the cringing and still have the like, cringing reactions to that. Actually, I think for me, a lot of it is hearing my voice at the same time as hearing my internal voice. Because I, I sound a lot higher to other people. In my head, I actually have a reasonable, uh, not super high and pitchy super voice. Super gruff. I have this exact yeah. same sensation. Yeah. It's why I can't watch my listen to myself talk either. And I can push through and listen to my voice itself after a bit. But what gets to me is both hearing the internal voice saying the exact thing I'm seeing myself see on, say on stage. So the advice to either just turn off and listen or look for your body language mm. that's awesome and then yeah maybe if i went back and looked at things that are a year or two old maybe i'd be able to to uh, really learn something from that because i wouldn't be hearing the nice voice that i have in my head well i really appreciate uh, everybody coming here and chatting about speaking uh, hopefully we can use this to inspire more people to get on stage um, i think that's all the time we have so thank you, everyone.
Thank you. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Roku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.